Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Meanwhile, on healthcare, everything is screwed up. We, we have every, every piece of the system is, is dysfunctional. And so if you were to ask me, what's the relative importance of trade policy and healthcare policy? Healthcare policy is at, at least an order of magnitude more important. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview, where we meet some of the brightest minds of today and talk about the ideas that matter most in politics, arts and society. I'm Steve Bloomfield, Deputy Editor of Prospect Magazine. This week, we're talking to the Nobel Prize winning economist and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman about what he calls zombie economics, the right wing free market economic orthodoxy that refuses to die. Paul came over to London last month and during his trip, he popped by our offices to talk to Prospects editor Tom Clark about zombie ideas, the limitations of the free market and what he makes of the race for the 2020 US presidency. We'll hear the interview with Paul in a moment. But first, I'm joined by Tom. Hello, Tom. Hello, Steve. How are you doing? I'm very good. I'm very good. Uh, normally, of course, we do this face to face in your office. Uh, but we are, uh, as ever right now, in, a, in different parts of London. Uh, how is the lockdown for you right now? Well, lockdown is um, OK, depending on the mood of the children, you know, who are in and around and locked out of this room, hopefully for as long as it takes to record this. But um, like most of British business, we're getting to find out just quite what a productivity problem children can be. Um, now, you obviously talked to Paul before uh, the coronavirus crisis really kicked off in both the US and the UK. Quite a lot has changed in terms of economics, and not just here, but globally since then. Um, are a lot of the old ideas of zombie economics that Paul was worried about, do they still exist or have they been uh, given a bit of a kicking over the past few weeks? I think that's a good question. But I think in a way, the bigger question is like whether... Um, we're now looking at the economy as a whole being a zombie rather than just some of these right wing ideas that Paul talks about. You know, as we'll hear, he's got this idea of, let's say, that tax cuts for rich people will pay for themselves. An idea Ronald Reagan talked about, an idea that George W. Bush talked about, an idea Donald Trump talks about. Every time we try it, it doesn't work. The money doesn't come in. And then that idea gets back up from the grave. Um, and uh, those arguments will go on, as, as he says. But, you know, what's happened since we were talking to Paul, coronavirus was already at large then in um, much of China uh, and looking quite big. But the West didn't wake up until it got to the West. And uh, as we've woken up to this as a problem, the economy has gone to sleep. We are now looking at an undead economy. It's interesting reading one of Paul's most recent pieces about coronavirus. He says that you know, the right wing response to COVID-19 has been almost identical to the right wing response to climate change. 
Um, and he's suggesting that this idea of denialism, these zombie ideas that he talks about in the book, are, uh, are in a sense not dead when it comes to uh, the way that the US government is thinking about coronavirus. Well, it's certainly true that we've got a kind of impulse to keep business going as if nothing was going wrong from Donald Trump. And I imagine that's what he's thinking of. But I read a different take on this from the Cambridge political scientist, sometimes writes for Prospect, David Runciman, saying what's interesting if you compare the 2008 banking crisis with the coronavirus crisis is that the people who were very, very concerned about the short term and keeping the economy going um, in 2008, you know, the, the, the Keynesians who weren't interested in what, what the long term consequences would be, they're much more interested in just jobs here and now because this is an emergency, um, are also the same people who tend to want a very dramatic lockdown now, even though that will mean a complete collapse in the economy. And then, of course, they say, but don't worry, we'll stimulate through government schemes and so on to keep the show on the road. But we haven't seen anything like this before. You know, these ideas about let's just have the um, state pay 80 percent of wages that aren't being earned anymore. That isn't something we've tried before. I don't think even in wartime. So I wouldn't call that a zombie idea. I'd call that a, a kind of brand newborn idea. And we'll see for better or worse how it plays out. Do you think we are going to see, not not just in the sort of the next few weeks as governments try to work out how to deal with this crisis, but but over the longer term, more new bold ideas like that coming through and being tried in different parts of the world? I mean, I think that this is an emergency like none we've seen before in terms of the economy. You know, we're, we're, it's not like, you know, the, the banking crisis was there was a really serious blockage in a bit of the plumbing of the system, a black box bit of the system that most people didn't know much about and you had to fix it. But what we're doing now, well, coronavirus isn't doing it directly. It's the treatment for coronavirus that's doing it is we're shutting down huge parts of the economy and they're parts of the economy that employ more people than many others you know like things like hospitality um and so the circumstances are completely unprecedented and we're having to try unprecedented things robert skidelsky who's the biographer of Keynes, wrote recently on our website you know we have seen not the same circumstances but equally unprecedented circumstances before when it was the second world war and Keynes came up with all kinds of things that no one had ever thought of before, like let's have a compulsory savings scheme, you know, so that everyone pays this money and then maybe they'll get it back after the war, depending on if we win. And I think it's a bit like that now. We're going to essentially um, ask lots of people to take a punt on the future that it's going to be all right and then the future will be all right. But um, it's hard to have much confidence about that. And if it's not, then in the end... Either there'll be inflation or there'll be a big rise in taxes and there'll be a big row about that either way. At the moment, are most countries, most uh, Western countries certainly, doing quite similar things? Is there, is there anyone that you've seen that, that's, that's really diverging from, from that new norm? Um, I think there's quite big differences between Europe and the United States. I think that America isn't, at, as of this moment, paying people to keep working in quite the same way through its stimulus that we're talking about in Britain now. But these things are changing so fast, I can't pretend to be entirely uh, au fait with what everyone's doing. The other big thing that is different is just the scale of the humanitarian emergency that is coronavirus. So that in Germany, it's a 
you know, a, a small number of deaths, it's a manageable problem uh, that could change. But at the moment, it doesn't look like it's going to rocket up to the sort of levels it is in Italy and the sort of level that sadly it looks like it's going to become in Britain and America. Uh, it's racing ahead of, of everyone. Um, and uh, like we'll see whether the case Sarah Sarah approach of Donald Trump can withstand that. He's already said that he's had second thoughts about the plan that it's OK to reopen churches in time for Easter. That's not going to happen anymore. And I guess that means that the economy is not reopening for business then either. OK, Tom, thank you very much indeed. Oh, it's worth pointing out, of course, that um, your essay on pretty much what we've just been talking about there, about uh, whether the economic medicine we're taking is actually going to uh, eventually do more harm than good, is in the new issue of Prospects, which uh, will be on newsstands, if you can reach a newsstand, that is. Well, later this week, in fact, Tom, isn't it? Yes, it is. And of course, you can read everything we've got um, in the magazine and on the website for free at the moment, thanks to our paywall holiday. So do dip in and have a look around. Indeed, yeah. If you can't get to Newsagent, uh, do read it online. Or, of course, take out a subscription. Um, go to www.prospectmagazine.co.uk uh, for all of that uh, but for now Tom thank you very much indeed and let's go to your chat with Paul Krugman Delighted to be joined by um, Paul Krugman now Paul it's 20 years I think since I saw you lecture at the LSE and you began I remember I used to be sensible and in the two decades since it's felt like you've picked ever more fights with the people that you call the very serious people. Um, what's happened over your career? Is it that you've moved or is it that the economic and political mainstream has moved and you've stood still? Oh, a little of both. I mean, I've, I've moved uh, a little bit, uh, I guess you could say to the left, but I've, I've changed my views on some things. When, when, the, when the evidence changes, I change my views. Uh, and so I, I'm... Uh, less have less faith in the invisible hand than I used to and I'm more willing to talk about ways in which markets fail and in which governments can can be helpful um, but the political mainstream has moved uh, or I don't know what the mainstream is but the the prevalence of of basically uh, crazy uh, right-wing doctrines in the political world has steadily increased over over the past several decades uh, so the, the zombie ideas I talk about in my new book have, have become much more powerful and have eaten a lot more brains than, than they mm. had in the past. Um, and, uh, and the economic mainstream is actually uh, not sure. It, you'd be surprised, actually, some, at, uh, at how uh, among professional economists at, at where the mainstream is, it's often quite different from what is considered sensible policy in the political class. So that uh, I talk about the very serious people who are obsessed with national debt. And meanwhile, the actually serious economists think that obsession is silly. Yeah. And you've also got um, it's a very kind of live thing at the moment, haven't you? This business of can we cut taxes again and will that actually pay for itself? Right. And the, so the idea that tax cuts pay for themselves, that's a classic zombie idea. It's been should have been killed by evidence decades ago, but it just keeps on shambling along. Um, but on the other hand, uh, the even even uh, seven eight years ago, it was quite common for everyone, almost everyone, to say that public debt was a really big problem. And now we have people like Olivier Blanchard, uh, former chief economist at the IMF, or Larry Summers, uh, saying what I've been saying all along that debt is greatly overrated as an issue. And so what keeps the zombie ideas alive? Presumably it's interest, self-interest. 
Yes, a very large part. On most of on most of the important zombie ideas, though not all, the uh, it, it's really basically about money. I mean, if you ask uh, who who advocates the doctrine that cutting taxes on the rich uh, will produce an economic miracle, um, it's actually it's almost nobody, almost no academic economists will say that. Uh, almost no serious economic researchers, I guess I would say, no serious economic researchers will say that. But there are a lot of people out there saying it, uh, and all of them. I think it's fair to say all of them essentially are being paid by billionaires to say that right. uh, one way or another. So it's, it, it, it's pretty raw. It's basically uh, spread an ideology that works to the benefit of wealthy people. And one thing I really felt is a sense of frustration, not with the paid stooges of uh, the oligarchs, as it were, but with fellow economists, analytical people who don't agree with them, but do engage with them as if they were saying it sincerely. Yeah, um, it's, uh, first of all, even, even people who basically share my values are often reluctant to say the obvious, which is that the other side is not talking, is not acting in good faith. Um, and then, uh, I do talk in Arguing with Zombies about the, um, the pathos of the, the center-right economists who keep on trying to make excuses for Trump or for, for conservative governments in general. Um, and I think in the hope that, that they will be listened to, maybe that they will get positions, but in any case, that they will have some influence. And it turns out that the modern right wing doesn't want them. It prefers, uh, uh, prefers the hacks. So you, you have somebody, you know, uh, uh, we can name, name somebody like John Taylor, who you know, has an illustrious career as a monetary economist, now defends Trump, uh, but Trump has no interest in hiring somebody like John Taylor, and instead he goes for the people like Stephen Moore or Judy Shelton, who are who are purely paid hacks. You've got this nice distinction between conservative professional economists and professional conservative economists, yes, don't you? Yes, that's right. <laughs> um, inequality is one of the themes, of course, that rattles all the way through the book, not surprisingly, given what's happened in the United States in particular in the last 40 years. Just briefly sum up how, during your time in economics, inequality has gone up in America and why you think it is. Well, we've seen, I mean... From about 1980, that's kind of the turning point. And in 1980, there were uh, not a lot of money at the top. I mean, we used to say, look, yeah, maybe you think rich people should pay more taxes, but there's no significant amount of money to be collected there because the rich people don't actually make that much money. And that's not at all the case now. And you can, you know, many, many different uh, numbers you can point to but I, I maybe in a way the one i like as a because it's kind of easy to grasp what it means in in concrete and in, in human terms is is that in the in the 60s and 70s uh, ceos of of major firms got paid about 20 times as much as the average worker which may sound like a lot but now it's 300 times as much as the mm. average worker that's a transformation in the shape of society and not for the better and do you think that that applies in the UK as well, or not really? Yeah, most of the numbers I've seen say that there are, I mean, there's been some rise in inequality pretty much across the advanced world, but it, the, the degree varies enormously. So not much in continental Europe. Uh, a little bit of rise in, in market inequality offset to some extent by, by government policy in uh, France or in Scandinavia. And then extreme rise in inequality in the United States. And Britain is kind of in between. Britain is sort of, uh, you know, halfway uh, American. And uh, you, you have many of the same phenomena, but not to quite the same degree. 
Now, when I heard you 20 years ago, the consensus view amongst economists would have been that this is what was called skilled biased technical change, which is something that would um, sort of drop out of the sky and uh, would mean that people who were very highly skilled would then be commanding higher wages. And that was that. And there wasn't therefore much you could do about it, apart from send people to university, maybe for longer and improve schools. You're saying something more disruptive right through this collection, which is it's about power. Yeah. Because uh, SBTC, we actually, uh, it was so common that, that people started just referring to it with the acronym. Uh, Skill bias technological Skill change. Skill bias technological change. Um, just has not held up as a story. Uh, it, it doesn't fit the facts. Lots of ways to say that. But one way I like to say is, um, you know, school teachers and private equity managers have roughly the same level of formal education and um, have not exactly had the same uh, arc in terms of their incomes. So it, it really just doesn't work. And then you start to look at what's happened to particular types of workers who have taken large real wage cuts. Uh, I use the example of truckers in the United States, and it ends up being, it's about power relations, not about invisible hand market forces. Um, it's the collapse of unions. And, so just tell us and, about the truckers. Uh, truckers. So truckers used to be a well-paid occupation. Back in the in the day, we used to think of that as a as a good job, um, and it's not now. Now it's a it's a poorly paid, extremely stressful job. Um, real wages are down around thirty percent from their peak in the nineteen seventies, and that's not technology. We don't we don't have self driving trucks yet, and uh, we we uh, and and we have more demand for trucking than ever, um, and it's not it, it's not globalization because. Uh, Trucking is a is a non tradable activity and internationally, mm. um, it it is about the collapse of unions, um, and the collapse of unions was in part part driven by just public policy that was hostile to unions, but also by deregulation, which which uh, uh, fragmented the industry. And there there were some good sides to that, but nonetheless, the effect was that that uh, work workers lost whatever bargaining power they had. And so, if you take that as a kind of a motivating case. It's showing that this increase in inequality, these declining wages for many regular workers, um, and the flip side of that being these soaring incomes for people at the top, is is much more about power than it is about sort of the, than robots. Hence, you've got to get political, I guess. But you started out as an economist on international trade. Yeah. And um, there's a lovely line in the book where you confess to a dirty little secret that it's not as important as we often pretend. And certainly the sort of economist magazine worldview would say, you know, the Great Depression was entirely caused by tariffs, sort of. And uh, and like at the moment, though, lots of people in economics, liberals as well as conservative, are very, very worried about trade wars on planet Trump. Do you think maybe that's something we're a bit too worried about? Yeah, it's it's exactly... Now, the Trump trade war has actually done more damage than I expected, but I I didn't expect a whole lot of damage, and it's been slightly more than that, uh, not so much because of the disruption of trade as because of the uncertainty. So you create an environment in which businesses, they don't want to invest in things that depend upon access to imported goods because that might be cut off, but they don't want to invest in competition with imports because they're not sure that the tariffs will persist. So they're they're in this kind of netherworld. And so the, the uncertainty has been a drag on the economy. Um, and there's some disruption. I mean, when it, it, a lot of, uh, you put a tariff on stuff coming from China. And um, actually what mainly seems to be happening is we end up still importing the stuff, but from more expensive sources. So we can start getting it from Vietnam instead. And and that's just a pure loss to the economy. But we're talking fractions of a percent 
on our income. Mm. Uh, trade trade policy. Uh, one way to, to say this is I, I I like to do the comparison between trade and healthcare. Um, the U.S. actually spends about the same share of income on imports that that it does on healthcare. Um, we have a little bit of protectionism. We have more protectionism than we did on trade. So there, there's some screw-ups. We've uh, made, we've given some bad incentives on trade, but they're really pretty trivial. Meanwhile, on healthcare, everything is screwed up. We, we have every, every piece of the system is, is dysfunctional. And so if you were to ask me, what's the relative importance of trade policy and healthcare policy? Healthcare policy is at, at least an order of magnitude more important. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Now, there's a lot more to globalization, isn't there, than just free trade in goods. There's also free movement of people and free flowing of capital. This is all obviously a very live issue in Britain, particularly at the moment with us having brexited out of the um, single market block. What's your thoughts about sort of globalization a bit more broadly? Is it going backwards and should we care? Well, there are two different. The cap issue of movement of capital is global hot money has become a, a serious problem. We've had now multiple economic crises uh, because global investors uh, love a particular country not wisely but too well and then abruptly fall out of love and you have what we call a sudden stop and that, that creates a crisis. In many ways, the euro crisis was actually a, a sudden stop uh, capital movements thing. And so that's a, that's a downside of globalization. It's not clear at all that this increased movement of capital has worked to the benefit of the world economy, probably has been a net negative. Um, Though really nobody is addressing that. Uh, That's not, that's not, Brexit doesn't deal with that at all. In fact, Britain is trying to keep the capital markets open because it wants the city of London to continue to be a big profit center. And the movement of people, um, I always say that if, if you aren't somewhat conflicted about immigration, um, there's something wrong with you. Um, I mean, on the one hand, ability to move to a, to a better place has been a huge force for human progress. And uh, and God knows, I mean, uh, if if my grandparents hadn't managed to uh, to leave the 
various parts of the former Soviet Union for the United States in the early 20th century. My, if I existed at all, uh, I'd be have a much, much worse life than I do. So it seems a shame to to deny similar opportunities to uh, to other to immigrants from other places over time. Uh, on the other hand, it is hard to sustain the kind of generous, strong social safety net that somebody like me favors if you have really open borders. And so, Just politically, you think it's hard to engender the same sense of identity? Yeah, it's hard to do politically, a little bit economically. Um, now, one, to some extent, these things are more political than they are grounded in, in economic reality. I, mean, I think one thing we've learned, for example, on capital, is that there's, there's substantially less real international movement of capital than the, than the data seem to show, because a lot of what we see is actually fictitious. So it looks like there are huge overseas investments by American corporations, but it's they're actually they actually are just accounting. Um, they don't that nothing real has happened. They've just managed to book their profits in Ireland uh, so as to avoid taxes, and the, the actual amount of capital overseas is is much less than than appears to be the case. Um, and to some extent, I think we're people. Despite even when borders are open, people are not necessarily all that mobile. The idea that you're going to have uh, you know, uh, that we would have a vast rush of hundreds of millions of people uh, flowing into Europe or the United States is probably exaggerated. But it, you're going to have, uh, we're not going to return realistic, we're, we're not going to return to what the U.S. was like before 1920, which had basically open immigration, at least for white people. Uh, I'm just saying that, these because I, I imagine like things were different in the past, but now with Trump having made this his defining issue, anti-immigrant sort of stance, is it difficult for you to express these sort of reservations in liberal circles? No, I think we're, um, I I think this uh, is a little bit different in the US. I think there's a little bit more willingness on the center left in the US to, to be realistic. Nobody is calling for open borders. Uh, no one is calling for completely unrestricted immigration. It's more about uh, allowing some, and in particular, um, giving a path to citizenship for the immigrants that are already in in the U.S. I mean, we actually, in fact, um, undocumented immigration has been declining. The, the, rate, the rate at which people mm. are coming has seems to have been falling off over time, uh, but there are tens of millions of people uh, in the U.S. who do not have the documents. And, uh, and what are we going to do, round them up and put them on freight cars? Mm. Well, actually, you know, given the current administration, maybe. But, uh, but assuming that you don't want to do that, then, then we, we need to make a, find a way to make all of these. On the whole, the, by and large, the world sends its, its best. Mm. The people who migrate are the people who, who are trying to make something of their lives. And, um, and we, should, uh, we should integrate them into our society. And do you have any sympathy at all with people who voted for Brexit here because they felt that, you can argue about GDP on the one hand, but just in their sectors, in their communities, the rate of change was having an adverse effect on wages or conditions? I think that people misdiagnosed that. I mean, people saw others and blamed those others for their problems. And that was uh, almost certainly wrong. Um, Now, what is true? I will say about Britain is that uh, it's very obvious. I, I, for various reasons, uh, spend some time in the in the north of England, and you have uh, you know a regional divergence. 
that is every bit as severe, maybe more so than what we have in the U.S. And and I don't blame people in Northern England for feeling that uh, that London doesn't care about them, mm. uh, that they're that they've been been left out, and that there's this elite sitting, you know, right where we are right now, and that <laughs> in West that Minnesota. is that 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 ignores um, um, their part of the country. And uh, now I don't think the response. Brexit as a response was constructive, but there certainly was a sense of neglect. I mean, I've mm-hmm. talked to people. I've been actually shocked sometimes. I talk to people, uh, you know, uh, bankers, and, and who sometimes say, "Well, we in in England, you, we don't have anything like, you know, what you have in Appalachia, where with these uh, destitute regions left behind." Mm-hmm. I said, "Have you ever been to Yorkshire?" <laughs> <laughs> I have. <laughs> uh, I'm from Yorkshire, so I can. Uh vouch for that um and let's just sit back to america though um election year like i'm guessing that you look at what's going on in the republicans and you think that the uh, zombie ideas <laughs> on the march as much as ever yeah we just had um i mean trump just released a zombie budget uh, it was absolutely uh nothing learned from uh from 40 years of experience it's exactly the same stuff tax cuts pay for themselves um Savage cuts in aid to the poor will make them, you know, get the lazy bums back to work. It's it's all of the worst stuff and uh, uh, no progress at all. Uh, so, so that's that side. And then coming to your own side, I guess the the, the Democrats. Um, I mean, I again looking through the book, you can see the frustration you had right from the beginning with Obama. Does that mean it's out of the question for you to feel enthusiastic about his vice president Biden? Oh no, I I will be. First rule: I'm not allowed to explicitly endorse because uh, the the Times has a rule, which is to prevent somebody from pulling a quote and saying the New York Times endorses. But I will be enthusiastic on behalf of any Democrat. First of all, because any Democrat will be not Trump, and secondly, because any Democrat will in fact be significantly progressive. I mean, it's so even you know Biden, uh, whatever happens, uh, he's first of all Obama. I was frustrated with, but Obama did a great deal of good mm-hmm. for America. You know, Twenty million people got health insurance just in itself. That's a, that's a, as Biden himself said, and they famously in a stage whisper as the bill was signed. This is a big fucking deal, <laughs> um, and um, and Biden is actually proposing policies that would be significantly to the left of what Obama did. Um, and my my view is that any Democrat will, in fact, enact if elected, will enact. Uh, a significant but not huge move in a progressive direction. Even if it's Bernie Sanders, he has hugely ambitious plans. They're not going to happen. No, because you've got all the Congress to get through right. and everything. But do you think if you had a someone seen as on the more cautious end of things, that they would do anything about the sort of wealth tax that the left of the party, and I imagine you from your economic analysis, are, are quite interested yeah. in? Well, I, I actually think the wealth tax is a, is a really good idea. Um, I suspect that uh, it's not at least in the full form, it's not going to happen. But again, I think any Democrat is going to significantly raise taxes on top incomes. I mean, Obama Hmm. did. What people don't know is that the federal tax rate on the top 1%, the effective tax rate by the end of Obama's uh, term, was back to about what it was uh, in 1980. I mean, he's effectively, uh, with very little fanfare, rolled back Reagan. Uh, people don't know that, but but it it is in fact what right. Happens. Okay, it sounds like with you're mellowing on Obama with the passage of time. Well, in I the was, book, you're a bit. I was just. Uh, I mean, there, there were p- things about Obama that the the failure to 
push for an adequate stimulus was a fatal mistake, and uh, I've never really forgiven that. The failure to, to take a harder line on the banks, I think, was a big political mistake. On health care, I don't think he could have gotten mm. much more than he did. And um, it, it's and what he did get uh, again, it's 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 half a loaf actually, sort of. If you look at at places where states that fully implemented it, it was about sixty percent of a loaf in terms of 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 gain there, and uh, which is a hell of a lot better than nothing. Finally, let's just have a word on the profession because unlike. Keats, you don't think beauty is truth or truth beauty, and that indeed much right. of what's gone wrong is an obsession with beauty or mathematical elegance over truth. Now, this comes up time and again in the book. Is this still the case, or is the economics now changing? Economics has gotten a lot better. The um, the the heyday. I mean, I in some sense, my you know, I, I'm a uh, intellectually, I'm a child of the 1980s which was a, we were a lot of, I mean, obviously I came into the field earlier than that, but a lot of, a, a lot of my own work and a lot of my sense of where economic debate lay came from things that were going on in the 80s. And that was the, the period when belief that, that if, a, if a model is beautiful, it must be true, uh, was really dominant. Um, these days, it's quite a lot different. These days, the profession has gotten much more interested in, in data. In, in facts, the uh, uh, get a lot of a lot of data on what's happening. Uh, try to uh, we don't get to do very many experiments, although there's a little bit of that going on in some of the development work. But but look for natural experiments where one state raises its minimum wage and a neighboring state does not, or or uh, we get some shift in government spending that results from changes in the defense budget, um, and uh, and all of that has. I think made for a much more open-minded view. I think the the sort of economists uh, under forty are much more grounded in reality than a lot of economists of my generation were. So it might kill off a few zombies. You never know. <laughs> well, yes, it's it's. I mean, now, what? Well, yes, the thing about it, uh, it's the old line about about hard science, but I think it's also true of economics, uh, that science progresses funeral by funeral. Uh, so nobody ever admits having been wrong, but little by little, the people who got it wrong do go away. And, and uh, I think the next generation looks a lot better. And can we just talk about whether there's a new school of economics coming out of Paris? In England, we talk about, you know, the, the Cambridge School and Keynes. You talk about saltwater economics and freshwater economics. But with Thomas Piketty's big new book coming out and... Uh, other things out of Paris. Do you think there could be a, well, a Paris school to reckon with? It's a little bit funny because there's a um, there's I'm not sure that it, it there is a there is a group of economists who have done pathbreaking work on inequality and uh, of whom many are French uh, and studied with or worked with Piketty in in, in Paris. Although uh, Saez and Zuckman, who are the 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 bright young things in that area uh, size ain't, isn't that young but to me he looks young now um, they're they're actually at Berkeley now so they're they're uh, they may be Paris uh, or, origin but they're saltwater economists uh, in terms of current location um, I, I'm not sure it really amounts to a separate school because a lot of it is the it, it's the focus on on inequality is something that is actually multinational it includes mm. uh, a lot of people in the U S uh, includes uh, 
where I sit, which is the Stone Center for the Study of Socioeconomic Inequality at the City University of New York. We have a really great group of people there working on the subject, and it all interacts. So there's a, there's a kind of a, this is more of a one of these invisible colleges that exists in many different physical locations. And yeah, there are a lot of French people in it. <laughs> Paul Krugman, thank you very much. That's all from us this week. Thank you very much for joining us on the Prospect interview. In the meantime, if you're at a loose end, and let's face it, lots of us are at the moment, do browse our paywall free website for all the writing on ideas that matter in politics, culture and society. The paywall is down for another few weeks while we're in lockdown here in the UK. If you enjoyed the Prospect interview, please do leave us a rating and review on whichever platform you're listening to us on. It really does help other listeners find us. Rebecca Liu was our producer this week. My name is Steve Bloomfield. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.